The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, October 19th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In San Francisco, a community has come together to celebrate a welcome addition to the public square. Necessary, long overdue, fundamental to the good functioning of an orderly society. They will come to celebrate their new toilet. At a ceremony held this afternoon, and I quote from the No Valley Voice, gotta go, great news for all you town square regulars and you irregulars too. Our state assemblyman Matt Haney will hold a press conference on Wednesday, October 19th, 1230, that's today, to announce that he has secured a certain amount of funding from the state budget for the long-awaited installation of a public bathroom at the town square, a space in the northeast corner near the front of the square, has been reserved for bathrooms since the park first opened. They go on to say that a portable toilet is available now. Now, it didn't say the No Valley Voice didn't say a certain amount. It named a certain amount, the actual amount. And I'm going to let you guess. How much does it take to install a public toilet in San Francisco? Heather Knight, the best city hall reporter in America, broke the story for the Chronicle. She couldn't believe how much it cost. She contacted the Modular Building Institute, which knows how much a toilet should cost, and asked its director, how much do you think they were spending to build a toilet? And asked him to guess how much San Francisco was spending to build one toilet in 150 square feet of space. And he emailed back, I'm going to guess high, I think, and say $200,000. Then I got on the phone with him and told him, no, no, it's a lot more than that. Indeed, it is. million. $1.7 million. Why? To quote Knight, an architect will draw plans for the bathroom that the city will share with the community for feedback. It will also head to the Arts Commission Civic Design Review Committee comprised of two architects, a landscape architect, and two other design professionals who under city charter, quote, conduct a multi-phase review of all city projects on public land, ranging from buildings to bathrooms to historic plaques, fences, and lamps. Frank Geary will design the lid, and Santiago Calatrava will design the handle of the toilet. The stall door will be made of rare earth materials mined by members of the Korean boy band BTS, as overseen by the managing partners of the law firm Kirkland and Ellis. No, that won't happen. It's just a toilet, an expensive toilet in an expensive city dedicated to an approval process that treats thrift as if it were a sin worse than eating processed food. The entire cost to build the Golden Gate Bridge was $35 million. Now, that is not adjusted for inflation, but it's also not just one toilet. Construction is expected to be approved and completed in 2025. We advise against holding it for that long. On the show today, Igor Danchenko, who, or maybe depending on your consumption of the news, the key to the deep state. Well, the verdict is in, and it either means nothing, everything, or once again, I refer you back to who? But first, the fate of the Senate will in all likelihood come down to one of three or four races, and none have been wilder than Georgia's. That's also the state where a gubernatorial rematch pits two fascinating candidates against each other, Kemp versus Abrams and Walker versus Warnock. Up next, a conversation with the host of Georgia Public Broadcasting's Political Rewind podcast to discuss it all.
I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Bill Nygut is the host of the Georgia Political Rewind, and we want to rewind Georgia politics because in the last couple of days, they've had a couple of big debates for a couple of the most widely anticipated races of the season, the governor's race, the Senate race. Bill, welcome back to The Gist. It's great to be with you, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Let's talk about the less close race, but the more recently, in terms of time, debate that happened. This was between Governor Brian Kemp and challenger Stacey Abrams. There was a libertarian on the stage as well. And I will give you my thoughts after I elicit your thoughts. Let's start with this. What was each trying to achieve? Well, uh, Brian Kemp, uh, uh, on the debate stage, did the same thing that he's done throughout the campaign. He has uh, said that he believes he has lived up to every promise he made as a candidate, and he believes that uh, the record of his first uh, term in office will show that the state's economy is growing at an extraordinary pace. Revenues are coming in uh, despite the pandemic. Uh, at record uh, number, in record numbers. Um, and uh, he's essentially argued over and over again that he's been a good steward for the state. Uh, Stacey Abrams uh, has said throughout her campaign that Kemp has been bad on some significant issues. Um, he, of course, passed a, an abortion law that virtually outlaws abortion in Georgia. It's a six-week heartbeat law. Uh, she has said that his uh, lax policies on guns, passing laws that make it uh, make guns available to almost anyone who wants them, is uh, leading to more violence in uh, the state. So, I mean, so sh she is going to, uh, as she did last night, continue throughout the campaign, talking about all the ways in which she thinks Kemp has been bad for the state. They've also argued about whether Kemp did the right thing in being one of the first governors in the country to open the state during the pandemic. Kemp says that's one of the reasons businesses have uh, thrived throughout the pandemic here. Abrams uh, points out that 38,000 people died in Georgia. And uh, she also suggests that um, white businesses did very well, but that black businesses under Kemp are not thriving. 
One dynamic that's going on that I perceive is that, and this happens with all political races, there are just national trends and the incumbents either benefit from them or don't. Now, nationally, the economy is not good. There is perhaps, uh, this is the overwhelming consensus of economists, a recession coming. And yet in Georgia, Kemp is running on the strength of the economy, and that seems to be a pretty good message to voters. Why is that? You're right that Kemp is running on the strong economy in Georgia, and he's correct about that. I mean, we've had the biggest surpluses in contemporary Georgia history over the last couple of years. Now, what's interesting about that, Mike, is that um, one of the reasons for that surplus is that Georgia has received billions of dollars in federal COVID relief money. Uh, And Kemp has been very smart in distributing that money uh, to uh, taxpayers, uh, to uh, various um, uh, important infrastructure uh, needs here, like expanding high-speed wireless uh, into rural Georgia, But the irony is, at the same time that he's taking advantage of these billions of dollars in federal money, he, of course, like most Republicans, is attacking uh, uh, President Biden and the Democrats for their wild spending sprees. I also noted an interesting part of the debate was there was one time when Stacey Abrams interrupted Brian Kemp, I think to accurately correct a statement he made about uh, background checks with all gun purchases. And for a debate that had a lot of interruptions, but mostly from coming from the libertarian candidate, it didn't seem so discordant to me. Brian Kemp said, you know, I didn't interrupt you, which I hadn't realized, but that is true. And then Stacey Abrams apologized. And then Stacey Abrams used her next answer to once again apologize. And I just wonder, what is what was really going on there? Is she just exceedingly polite? Or might there be some polling that says, uh, and this often afflicts, this often affects a black candidate or a black female candidate that they're perceived as extra angry. In fact, at one point, Brian Kemp referred to Stacey Abrams as being upset and mad when she didn't seem to be. But did that strike you as an odd moment, that moment of apology and uh, extra apology? It's interesting that you noticed that. I got a number of emails and texts from people who said to me, why is she apologizing? Nothing significant happened there. Um, and, and it was an odd moment. In part, it was an odd moment because Stacey Abrams, who is so self-assured, uh, who uh, is quite clear about her strength as a speaker, uh, it, it, to suddenly uh, sort of back away in that um, way in which she apologized, I thought it made her look a little bit more timid than she is. And you raise an interesting question. Is there a part of her that wants to make sure people don't somehow see her um, as a an angry black candidate, an angry black woman, um, a, a a woman who operates outside the boundaries of of, uh, polite civil discourse. I don't know, Mike. It was a very strange moment, I thought. And as I said, a lot of people agree with you. Yeah. Or maybe it was, you know, the very simple explanation of, you know what? You're right. I do apologize. And she just wanted to emphasize that point. There's another, there was another interesting aspect to the debate, which got to, uh, I think, the, uh, what the underlying polls say. 
Normally in a debate, candidates will know that they have their base with them. That's why it's called the base. And they will be making arguments for the very few voters who are undecided. Polls show us that in Georgia, very, very, very few voters who are undecided. And, you know, those voters probably won't be watching debates anyway, as I believe Professor Alan Abramowitz pointed out on a recent podcast you hosted. However, I sensed from Stacey Abrams a little more arguments to try to rally the base. And are the polls picking up or does your reporting show that what should be her strength in the African-American community maybe isn't at 95%? I don't know. Maybe it's at 85% because she did seem to be making a lot of arguments designed to appeal specifically to people we would assume would be voting for her anyway. The polling in Georgia has shown that Stacey Abrams has just about 80 plus percent of black voters in her camp. That's not enough for her to win the election. She needs 90 percent. Now, Abrams argues that the poll is not an accurate reflection of how black voters are going to end up turning out. She argues with the sample sizes and and that sort of thing. But I don't think there's much question that in the black community here, especially among black men, there has been a lot of discussion about whether Abrams has found the key to really winning over their votes. And so you're right. She has made a particular effort, especially to reach out to black men. She's had a number of community gatherings with uh, black male voters, for instance, um, and talked to them about the issues that she thinks will inspire them. But if if the numbers in the polling are correct, that she's only at 80 plus, um, she's not going to win. One last question on the gubernatorial race. It is an interesting race in that there is the question of accepting election results, but it's the only race that I'm aware of where it is the Democrat who is back-footed with that (laughs) question because Stacey Abrams did not deny that it was a legitimate election when she lost to Kemp last time. She, quote, acknowledged but didn't concede Uh, My question for you is how much I could understand why, first of all, it's become a national talking point among Republicans, a little bit of whataboutism. I can understand why someone who was uh, supporting Kemp might revel in this this irony, especially since Brian Kemp rebutted Donald Trump's uh, attempts to sway the election. But how much is it really playing in the minds of voters who might vote for Stacey Abrams or who are at least persuadable? The fact that she didn't technically concede last time. I don't think it's having much impact at all. I do think it's a a good Republican talking point. I do understand why they uh, pointed out uh, with some frequency, uh, Abrams, if you go back and listen to her speech, really didn't do much more than say, I acknowledge that Brian Kemp will be governor. But, you know, the Washington Post did a great fact check on this, which points out that on a several, on a number of occasions, Stacey Abrams actually said she was the real winner of the race. So Republicans are going to take advantage of that. I don't blame them. Yeah. But is that really going to turn off voters? I find that hard to imagine when there's so many other issues that matter more in Georgia. All right, let's turn from the governor's race where Stacey Abrams is the Democrat trailing by six to the Senate race where Raphael Warnock is the incumbent Democrat up by four, supposedly in the polls. Do you believe those polls? Yeah, it's very hard to know. I mean, there have been polls all over the place on this race. Uh, 
We just did a poll last week that showed it basically within the margin of error, um, a push. On the other hand, CNN's most recent poll of that race, I think, has Warnock up by more than five points. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, choose your poison here. I think a lot of it comes down to, as you well know, Mike, what are the screens that pollsters are using? You know, what's the mix of people in their uh, among their respondents? Um, all of that makes a big difference. So at this point, all we can say is this is a close race. What I look at, one of the things I look at is movement within the same poll. Pollsters normally don't, you know, throw away their methodology from month to month. And I have noticed, and this was after it was predicted, that all the revelations about uh, about Herschel Walker's, what they used to call love children, but especially about his paying for an abortion, wouldn't matter. It's all baked in. Uh, the MAGA constituency doesn't care. I heard a lot of those predictions. And I said, I think some might care. And I did see if you look at polls, the same poll from before the abortion revelations to afterwards, Warnock increased his lead, usually lead by one or two points. Do you see the same thing? Yeah, I, I think that that's probably true. Uh, that that in fact Warnock is going to get some uh, 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 momentum out of these most recent allegations about about Walker uh, about having paid for an abortion um, about having a a child by the woman uh, who had the abortion and then got pregnant again uh, she went ahead and had the baby she says even though Herschel Walker. Uh, didn't want her to. And then she goes on and says, and by the way, Herschel Walker's had virtually nothing to do with his child. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think in the long run, that's damaging. Um, you're right. The base is there for him. They're baked in. But there are there are voters out there who they are going to vote for Brian Kemp um, because they think the Republican governor has done a good job running the state. But they're telling us they're not convinced they can vote for Herschel Walker and maybe giving their votes to Raphael Warnock. You know as well as I do that in these polarized times, the notion of people splitting their ticket like that is rare. Yes, it used to be a fundamental aspect of American democracy, and now it's especially as we become more partisan, more and more rare. But it does make sense. These Kemp and And Walker are such different men and such different candidates. And Kemp, if nothing else, has a track record. And Walker, though he set records in track, does not. (laughs) Uh, I just stumbled into that one. That was good. Kemp has not been out campaigning with Herschel Walker. There are people who believe that Walker needs Kemp to stand by his side to help him uh, 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 win this race. I'm not sure that Brian Kemp feels any need to spend time on the campaign trail with Herschel Walker. And he certainly doesn't want to answer questions about the latest controversies about Walker. So I heard your esteemed panel on the Georgia Political Rewind all agreeing that in their debate, Walker did not hurt himself. Walker cleared whatever low bars there were for him to clear to not create a disastrous spectacle. Is that fair? Is that fair that that is the standard that he's judged by? Well, it, it it may or may not be fair, but it's the reality. The thing about the lower, lowered expectations uh, it, that's interesting to me is Herschel Walker himself, as you know, lowered expectations by saying, I'm not that smart. 
When was the last time you heard a candidate for the United States Senate uh, say, I'm not really very smart? But, but the Warnock people pay, are paying a little bit for this too, because they made such a big deal for so long about Walker not accepting these debates. Why won't he debate us? Why is he afraid to debate us? Uh, maybe he realizes he's not qualified to be. So they help lower the expectations themselves. Now, should Walker be judged on lowered expectations? Uh, who, who knows? That's up to voters. But I think Walker exceeded expectations. I don't mm -hmm. think he just met expectations. I think he actually had a really good debate. Um, whether you agree with him or not, just as an observer, he was a strong uh, performer in that debate. It means that he had great coaching and um, and he you can work with him. Right. And does he always have proper subject verb agreement? Is he as eloquent as a preacher or even the average uh, U.S. senator? Probably not. However, coaching. So how does it show up? Knowing what the other side is saying and then riffing on it. That shows yes. doing your research. That shows uh, creating an opportunity for yourself. Herschel Walker is very coachable. How did it show up in the debate? Give me an example. Well, here's the perfect example. Um, throughout his campaign, uh, Warnock has used an image repeatedly in talking about abortion. He said, I think a patient's room is too small with a doctor and the woman and a nurse uh, to have government crowd into the room as well. So he used that line in the debate. And Herschel Walker said, what Senator Warnock neglected to mention is that there's a baby in that room, too. I thought that was the perfect example of how well-coached Walker had been. It's as you just said, his team knew the way that Warnock was talking about abortion, and they came up with an answer that Walker could use, and he used it effectively. Bill, you've moderated debates, right? Yes, Okay, so this may be a little in the weeds and journalistically, but I was somewhat confused by the moderators of that debate. I had never heard of the outlet, which is something called, I think, Nexstar, or is that the succession company? Uh, anyway, <laughs> they're... <laughs> They own a small TV station in, well, you correct, is it Savannah? And I've done some no, reading. they have a that, number of TV stations. Okay, right. And they are, they are the outfit behind News Nation. And maybe not to cast too many aspersions based on their background. It did seem to me that they weren't interested in a lot of exchanges. At one point, they even put up a chart that was pretty misleading to try to indicate that turnout in uh, Georgia among uh, the black community wasn't a problem when the very poll they were citing or the very study they were citing was headlined something about the black and white gap is bigger than it ever has been. And they put it to Raphael Warnock. What's the problem with voting? Look at how high the turnout is. It went up by 50%. It actually went up by 15% to 22%, which is one way to look at it. You could say 50%, but most humans would say 7%. Anyway, as someone who's been in that position, do you think the moderator was a plus and do you think that affected what <laughs> voters got uh, number one I do think it affected what voters got um, I think you're on to something important here um, in a number of ways uh, first of all I, I have always favored debates that have fewer rules 
This whole format, which is now accepted in debates across the country, you have one minute to answer the question. You have 30 seconds to respond to what the candidate said about you. Oh, now you have 15 seconds. I find that to be, those are handcuffs. Why Mm. not let candidates talk to each other about the issues? I do think a moderator has to maintain a certain amount of decorum and control. I think that's important. But when moderators start to see themselves somehow as more important in a way than the candidates themselves by by stopping them from making points, I think they've crossed the line. And I think that debate in Savannah was a really good example of that. Um, You know, reprimanding candidates, as one of the moderators did, essentially um, saying, you've you've talked too long, you stop it, you're going over the the line here. When Walker pulled out the fake badge, um, I, I thought the moderator, you know, could say, that's a violation of the rules, but exactly what is that badge you're holding up there? (laughs) I would have liked to have heard the answer to that. Um, I I also think that it's significantly a problem when moderators, and I know this is controversial, I think moderators ought to fact check. When Herschel Walker says, I support the six-week heartbeat law, I think it's a moderator's job to say, uh, uh, Mr. Walker, we've heard you say repeatedly you want a total ban on abortion. Mm-hmm. And they didn't do any of that. But it's also his opponent's job to do that. And Warnock didn't. Yes. And I wondered what was going on there. I, you know, it, it, I agree with that, too. Does Warnock have internal polling that shows him out front far enough that he doesn't have to challenge Walker on every point? I don't know. He might. We haven't seen it. Or I will also tell you another thing. When Warnock... Um, I, I've spent time, I've gone to, to uh, Raphael Warnock's church on any number of occasions because it's a wonderful place uh, to see uh, some of the most interesting people in the African-American community here. And because Warnock is a remarkable preacher, he does my Jewish soul good when I get mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. listen to him. So I know what Warnock is, is outstanding in that role. I have to tell you that during the 2020 campaign, I don't think he was ever a particularly good debater. He's a little reticent. He's not willing to go on the attack. He certainly didn't do that the other night. And and I have always felt when I watch him in these debates that he's not quite comfortable in that setting. Um, He did miss many opportunities the other night to uh, respond to uh, Walker But whether it's because maybe they got polling that says he's ahead, maybe he wants to maintain a certain uh, presence and decorum that he thinks will appeal to people, who knows? Bill Nygut is the host of Political Rewind from Georgia Public Broadcasting. Bill, thanks so much. It's always fun to talk to you. And now the spiel. Igor Danchenko has been acquitted, which, depending on your reality calendar, renders a verdict unto the substancelessness of the arguments of anyone who's still prattling on about a deep state out to get Donald Trump. Or maybe it's the greatest indictment of all of said deep state. Don't worry. 
When we get to the end of this spiel, I will deliver a verdict. Won't be one of those contemplations on the nature of subjectivity. So factually, Igor Danchenko was Christopher Steele's Christopher Steele, which is to say the Steele dossier was mostly the Danchenko dossier. It was the source for much of what appeared in that dossier. And Danchenko's sourcing wasn't so great. He could not substantiate rumors. He could not prove his allegations. He could not, for the most part, cite his sources. Therefore, Steele, relying on Danchenko, had a dodgy product. And the FBI had a so-so predicate for its investigation into Trump. We know this, the FBI inspector general proved this, but it was not what Danchenko was on trial for. But also, if you're using the trial as a means to discredit all of the FBI's investigation, The lack of a quality dossier was not the only reason that Trump was investigated. It was part of the reason. It was a weak part of the reason. But without the Steele dossier, there were still Trump associations with questionable characters like Carter Page and George Papadopoulos. And there was still a concern raised by a foreign government, believed to be Australia, that the Trump campaign was working with the Russians. And there still was Well, in fact, there was proof that Russia did, in fact, meddle in the U.S. election for the benefit of Donald Trump, if not at the direction of or even with the knowledge of Donald Trump. Okay, fair. Fine. I'll quote from the inspector general's report. The investigation was undertaken for, quote, an authorized investigative purpose and with sufficient factual predication. Even so, Special Prosecutor John Durham was named by Trump to look into the question, were crimes committed along the way? His first indictment was against Michael Sussman, a case he lost and lost badly, badly being defined as the judge tossing out some of the indictment before it got to a jury and jurors afterward expressing that bringing the case was a waste of time. The Sussman trial was seen as quite suspect by Peter Strzok, the deputy assistant director of the FBI's counterintelligence division. He ran the investigation into Trump and the Russians. Now, Peter Strzok is a name that elicits howls from the investigate the deep state crowd. And I know that, which is exactly why I think he has standing when he said of the Danchenko indictment that it's a righteous case. Here he was speaking on the late great In Lua Fun program, Strzok saying that if Danchenko did lie, it would have meant that his time was wasted, the government's time was wasted, and Danchenko should be prosecuted. Clearly, they have, we were spending a lot of resources trying to get to the bottom of who the subsources were, trying to figure out what information they might have. And so these small statements did make a difference, did consume FBI resources, did prevent us from either doing things one way or the other that we might have otherwise not done. If Durham's charges were true and provable, Danchenko should go down. Peter Strzok said that. But Danchenko did not go down, did not come close to going down. Like the Sussman trial, the judge threw out one charge before it even got to a jury. The New York Times, in its front page story, acquittal of Russian analyst deals final blow to Trump-era prosecutor, notes that the prosecutors never delivered on the hope among Trump supporters that a deep state would be revealed and rebuked. But the prosecution, quote, provided more fodder for grievances about the Russia investigation. But once the cases reached courtrooms, they both crumbled. But the grievances did not. 
In fact, anticipating a not guilty verdict, members of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, perhaps the most prominent supporters of the Durham investigation, were girding themselves and their listeners for a result they characterized as wholly independent from the central thesis that Durham was really after, i.e. that there's a deep state out to get Trump. Here, editor of the Wall Street Journal editorial page Paul Jago talks with board member Kimberly Strassel. Whether or not Durham gets a conviction here of Danchenko is less significant than the facts that have been uncovered. I know there's no question Durham wants a conviction, particularly after he didn't get one against Michael Sussman, another person involved in this for lying to the FBI, although we did learn some very interesting things from that trial. So uh, however this turns out at trial, what's next for Durham? Yeah, I agree with you, Paul. One interesting little detail here, which I would urge people to bear in mind, is that when Durham brought that Sussman trial, he had to do it in D.C. He had a Washington, D.C. jury. And this was a jury verdict in Virginia, so maybe Strassel suggested they might convict, but they did not. Perhaps it wasn't the predilections of the jury, but the paucity of the evidence that drove them to this verdict. So what were those facts uncovered that Jigo was talking about? I followed the trial. I saw what the deep state excavators were up in arms about. And there was one particular piece of testimony that they called blockbuster, or as per this National Review headline, Danchenko trial bombshell, FBI offered Steele a million dollars to prove dossier claims. I don't understand why this is a bombshell. We know that Steele couldn't prove his claims. If he could prove his claims, we wouldn't talk about the Steele dossier. I wouldn't describe it as I did, dodgy, suspect, and unproved. We just talk about the facts of what Trump did in league with the Russians. What does not being able to prove it for a million dollars or two million dollars or all the tea in China really show? Maybe there's just something about saying a million dollars. One million dollars. Maybe that makes this tactic seem more nefarious than I understand it to be. Cash Patel, a former aide to Devin Nunes, who went on to work in the Trump administration, described on one of his podcasts the significance of a million dollars. Now you have not the political party paying for the dossier. You have the United States government and our tax dollars being offered to Christopher Steele for what we now find out. It wasn't just go out and get information. It was, can you, and this is Auten's testimony that I'm paraphrasing from this week in the trial, can you, Christopher Steele, corroborate any of the information that we're looking for as it relates to Russiagate? And if you can, we'll pay you a million dollars. Shocking. But he couldn't corroborate it. The FBI pays sources all the time, but it didn't pay Steele because Steele couldn't prove it. To me, that shows the FBI was going to great lengths in an attempt to establish the veracity of the document, which they should have done. The dossier was, as I've said a few times, misused, not just by the FBI to get FISA warrants, but also misinterpreted and overhyped by many in the media. But really, I don't get why it's a bombshell for the FBI to incentivize a source to provide authentication. Maybe the idea is that they were offering a bribe. It was really a bribe. If so, it didn't work. And isn't, in the telling of most of the people who regard the FBI and Steele as corrupt actors, just funneling the information that their clients want to hear? But doesn't this, the rejection of a million dollars, give many reasons to think that these weren't just hacks who were serving up lies about the would-be president for a price? This was a big price, 
No one paid it. The not guilty verdicts do probably end John Durham's career. He was ready to retire, and this was expected to be his final case. We even saw him personally arguing in front of the jury and cross-examining witnesses. But the last hurrah won't mean the last of the harumphs from those who are looking to prove a deeper, more direct conspiracy than they found. I really do try to be fair in considering their arguments. I mean, how many times do I have to denigrate the veracity of the Steele dossier and acknowledge that many in the media let an idea of international nefariousness outstrip their proof? But Trump predicted Durham would uncover the crime of the century. That's what he called it. And what really happened? Well, his two trials cost taxpayers $5.8 million to get bupkis, which isn't a Russian word. It's Yiddish for goat or sheep dropping, i.e. nothing, a.k.a. the opposite of a million dollars. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is The Gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca goes by many names and many titles. She is, for our purposes, the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dooperu, and thanks for listening. Don't you think we should maybe ask for more than a million dollars? A million dollars isn't exactly a lot of money these days. Virtucon alone makes over nine billion dollars a year. Really? Mm-hmm. It's not. Okay, then. We hold the world ransom for $100 billion.